This event was recorded live at the 2017 Edinburgh International Book Festival. ...in welcoming Stephen Baxter. My name is Ken McLeod. I'm a science fiction writer. I've known Stephen for many years now. And I can honestly say that Stephen is one of the most prolific and most diverse authors, certainly in British science fiction. A huge influence, a popular writer. He has worked with... Sir Arthur C. Clarke and the late Sir Terry Pratchett. He has written stories that are, and novels that have ranged from the end of the universe to mammoths on Mars yep. to the our, our Stone Age ancestors <laughs> damming the North Sea and saving Doggerland from the rising floods. So please join me in welcoming Stephen Baxter. Ah, thank you. Thank you. I need hardly tell you, but I must, to turn off your phones and to refrain from any kind of social media until the lights are back up for questions, as they will be in about half, a, half an hour to 40 minutes. So, I think I will start by asking Stephen, how did you conceive of the idea of a sequel to The War of the Worlds? The War of the Worlds is a novel that many of us have read in early youth or even childhood, and it sits in our mind as a thing in itself, um, mm. a finished object, rather like the other SF classics that we may have come across. So, what drew you into writing this sequel The Massacre of Mankind <laughs> Available in the bookshop next door yep. um, Well it's it's, uh, it's a long story uh, really going back to when I was uh, uh, um, first exposed to Wells as a kid at school uh, I'm from Liverpool and I went to a good um, Catholic grammar school there and the library had a fantastic collection of SF donated by somebody I think they're all book club editions looking back. Everything from Asimov to Van Vogt to Wells. And I just burned through it, you know, at the age of um, 12 or 13. Um, later, I opened the new library at the school, you know, uh, which is very like an end to that story. But The Time Machine and The War of the Worlds and the other Wells classics were definitely in there. And it was The Time Machine, actually, that, that it seems to be did end on, a, on, a, on a, a, a huge cliffhanger because the time traveller... He has his adventure in the future. He comes back in time and tells his dinner party companions, goes off into the future, and, and you never hear what became of him again. And I thought there must be a sequel by Wells to begin with, you know, and I spent some of my later teen years looking for the sequel by Wells. The Time Machine Part 2 didn't exist. Um, but I think that lodged a question in the back of my mind of what happened to the time traveller. Could you tell the story? And then when... Years later, in 1995, there was the centenary of the time machine. I thought, well, uh, if you're ever going to write a sequel to the, that book, it's now, now is the opportunity. Uh, that was my sixth novel, I think. After that, though, um, I, I got to know the, Wells, the world of Wells a bit more widely. Um, uh, I, there, there was a, an H.G. Wells Society of academics and philosophers and um, political scientists and so on who study Wells's work all of it, the non-fiction as well as the fiction and his legacy um, so I presented my, my, my book to, to them and they were extremely friendly they were 
um, welcoming and uh, forgave my naive reading of Wells probably at the time. Michael Foote was there, you know, the old Labour leader, very old even then, 20, 20, 20 years ago. Um, and he kept nodding off, I remember, during my talk. But he, <laughs> but he kept nodding off during everybody's talk. Uh, but I think he is the only person I've ever met who actually met Wells when he was a young man. Uh, he, he, before the war, he was the editor of the Evening Standard and he was commissioning pieces from Wells, you know, think pieces on the, the international situation and so on. And he, he clearly, you, you, if you read his biography of Wells, you can tell that he really loved Wells as a gigantic, dominant figure in person, you know, as a famous, massive personality in the world, uh, in, in, in addition to the work he's left behind. Um, so after the, the Time Machine sequel did well, and I, I did think then of doing more Wellsian sequels, but I thought, well, you know, I wanted to develop my own material as well. But 20 years further on, uh, last year was a big year for, for Wells. It was his and, uh, 150th birthday, I think. And there was going to be big celebrations in Woking, which is the setting for the opening part of, of the War of the Worlds, where he lived when he wrote the book. And There's uh, a statue of the Martian in, in ah, Woking. Yes, yep. I don't know if everyone can see that clearly, but to commemorate the only thing that has ever put Woking on the map. <laughs> <laughs> and even that blasted it off the map. <laughs> yeah. So again, with those, with those anniversaries coming up, it occurred to me, you know, it's going to be a good time to do a sequel to the War of the Worlds. Because in a way, you're right, it's self-contained, and you think of it as the invasion and, and, and the story, and it ends with the bacteria and so forth. Um, but if you, if you read the book, there's plenty of open threads in there. I mean, for a start, the Martians have got to come back, because it's climate change on Mars, the climate change refugees. It's a very modern theme, really. The sun is cooling down in this cosmology. Uh, actually, actually, we know it's heating up now, but cooling down, Mars descending into an ice age, they had to flee, they'd done everything they could, they covered it with canals and gone underground and so forth, rebuilt themselves their own bodies, but still they got to flee towards the warmth, when they're driven off from the Earth, Wells tells us that he, they, they go on to Venus, they, they seem to invade Venus, but it seemed to me they were bound to come back, you know, that was what we saw in the Wells book, it was like an initial foray, it's like Columbus going to the New World where he doesn't know where it, he barely gets there, he doesn't know where he is, he, he's, he's, he's out of his depth entirely, but he made it. He goes back, and then you get the conquistadors coming over who knew what they were doing. So, so my sequel is the conquistadors coming, following up that they don't make the same mistakes again, they're much more purposeful, and, and, and we go on from there. Another way in which the War of the Worlds almost incites sequels is that it contains so many untold stories and possible stories mm. that are the minor characters which yeah. to be honest I only noticed when I reread the book after having re read yours <laughs> and you thought oh Miss Elphinstone ah there she is Yes. and um, the, the artillery man who makes an appearance and the artillery man is a character who has a very stark vision of what life would be like under the Martians if, mm. they, if they did succeed in their conquest and we never get to see that story because, of course, the bacteria cut it off. Mm. You, you also have... There is also the fact that it's all focused on the home counties. And there must be uh, an impulse to think, well, what happens when the, if the Martians come down somewhere else? Somewhere a little more significant than Woking, perhaps. And there was a 
there was a collection, a very fine collection actually, called War of the Worlds Global Dispatches, which oh imagined yes, them coming out, Kevin coming Anderson, down around yeah, the world. Yeah. How did you pick your your other observers for 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 to give a kind of global view of what the Martian invasion was like? Well, I did try to build on what was in the book, uh, as you say. Um, uh, <coughs> so my narrator is like the narrator in in the original, in that she's a witness to the event, she lives through them and then she reports it later, so the same kind of technique you know if, uh, I think if you're doing something like a sequel using the same kind of techniques as the original author, helps to um, give it some integrity so yes, so she's the, 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 the young woman who's saved by the brother of the narrator in the original when they're fleeing from London and she, she, she's, she pulls out a gun on these bandits, nearly shoots the brother's head off as I recall but she's brave and she's, you know, quite young. So 20 years later when the Martians come again, she's going to be quite a good character in this changed world, changed by the shock of the Martian invasion. She's become a kind of embittered journalist who's fled from a militarised Britain. So she has her own story uh, uh, in there. The artilleryman, in a way, he's the most interesting character in the, the original book, I'd agree, because he's got the right idea. You know, he says, look, we're all going to have to live down in drains underground. Uh, in the underground tunnels in, of, un, under London and so on, live like rats. We've got to get all the books down there. Never mind poetry and plays, but the science books and so on. The, uh, and he, he's got this vision of the Martians raising us to fight each other, maybe, and uh, domesticate us like animals with, with pious, some kind of pious peacekeeping religion to keep us pacified. And it's a bleak vision, but the mo- he's, a, he's a fool in the original book. He's, he's, he's drunken, he's playing cards, and ineffectual. But it seemed to be what happens to him after he's after the war. He's in he's, he's in Wells's book for a start, and he's portrayed as a fool, so he's not too pleased about that. Charlie Chaplin plays him in the movies, um, in my book. So he's, he's he's pretty embittered, but he's still got the, this keen vision. So when the Martians come again, he loves it. He goes straight for the Martians to try and find a way, uh, try and find a rank, if you like, in this new world order as a kind of interface between the Martians and the humans. He betrays happily betrays humans in order to gain ca- favor from the Martians. You know, he's a, a, he's a brutal, realist thinker, and, and so he's very uh, a compelling character because of that. Otherwise, though, yes, I thought they'd have to come back to the co- home counties because one thing about the Martians you learn from Wells is that they, they do have an ethic of their own. They're not, they're not monsters. They, they live in a close society. They save each other. If, you, if a Martian is shot down by the artillery, the others go back for him and try and retrieve him and so on. Um, I'm saying him, in fact, the sexless. Um, so it seemed to me that where were they, they, were they returned to? They'd come back for the remains of the fallen from the first invasion. So coming to Britain is, is, is going to be a good thing to do because they, they can achieve that goal. Britain's an island, so if they, can, if they can conquer that, it's a base like Guam for the Americans, from which you can go on to, go to, to, to hit the rest of the world. And also Britain must have seemed to them like the capital of the world. They live in a unified society, right? And London at the time was the biggest city. So although there's, there's some Victorian exceptionalism in having the Martians come to London, it wasn't a bad strategic choice for the Martians. They must have thought that looked like the capital of a unified Earth. So you get that decapitated and the rest might fall apart, they might have thought. So there's lots of reasons for them to come back to London and England again, retrieve the fallen, build on what they did before, and then call down the, the horde on the rest of the planet. And I really I planned, I had, I had great fun actually, planning the, uh, 
the, the locations where they're going to come down around the world. I imagine the world turning uh, under this hail of bullets coming from Mars. So in, in, in every couple of time zone strips, they, they come down. In Berlin, in St. Petersburg, in Melbourne, around the planet, Los Angeles, New York, uh, and so on. So some of it was the logic of the geography. You know, one or two strikes in each continent at least. Um, but also you have to go to some places. I thought you have to go to New York. The Martians in Manhattan, you know, the heat ray with the, with the Edison coming out with a, with a super weapon to try and hold them back. Fantastic, striding across the, the straits. Um, I thought they had to go to Berlin as well, given that, you know, it's the Kaiser's Berlin, the, 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 the industrial hub and the militaristic hub of Europe. They have to go there um, and be confronted by the German army. Um, so, so, and I look for, yes, I look for witnesses of the, the appropriate kind in each place. Uh, not necessarily a soldier fighting the, fighting a battle, but, uh, but, 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 a, you know, somebody on the feet of the Martian. In, in, in Melbourne, Australia, an Aborigine kid who wakes up one morning, he's been sleeping in a tip in an amusement park, uh, in a skip, you know. He wakes up and all the white people have gone. And he tries to work out why. He just wanders around Melbourne, the party's never seen before. And it's because the Martians have come. And the Martians are to the white in Australia as the whites were to the Aborigines. And he's, so this, you know, that was the kind of theme that Wells was aiming for in the War of the Worlds in the first place, this colonialism. How would you like it if the Martians did to you what you did to the Aborigines or the Tasmanians and so on? Yes. (coughs) One of the the great pleasures of the book, and I I look forward to rereading it with a an Ordnance Survey map of Southeast England mm. spread out on the table is um, seeing it must have been considerable fun working out what the Martian strategy would have been yeah. in their second second strike and uh, what the British in primarily would have done to prepare for it. Yeah. And I, I really, it is really a strong point of the book how the the two sides are trying to outthink each other. Um, it's a actually a way of thinking that was almost pioneered by Wells because he practically invented war games. Yes, So you're, yes. you're more or less wargaming the Second Martian War. Yes, uh, but there's a lot of <coughs> material to build on. The, the, the Wellsian uh, magazine, you... you, you, you oh, that's, that was Foundation, wasn't yeah. it? The, well, the Wellsians, the Wells, Wells Society, have done studies of the Martian strategy, as shown in, in Wells's book. And it's based really on the Franco-Prussian War, I think. Where the, the, the Germans advanced on Paris, you know, this very fast high-speed advance just overwhelming the opposition coming great force hit the capital and, and the Martians pretty much try at least to do that to London they get a base outside the city uh, at Woking as you say it's mm. insignificant itself but it's a base from which they build their pits and off they go to London and this dramatic advance um, so it seemed to me that what would happen in Britain after the war you know we just have a pitifully small land army in 1897 when, when Wells' book was written um, but we had this fantastic navy projecting our power around the world and keeping Britain itself safe. Well, after the, after the uh, Franco-Prussian War, there was a generation of armchair generals and retired colonels and so forth who lamented the state of the British land army and said, what if um, the Germans come over and do to us what they did to Paris? And there's a, whole, there's a generation of fiction in, in serialising the Daily Mail and so on of, of invasions of, of by, mostly by the Germans of Britain and how it would work out and, and Wells clearly borrowed some of those techniques um, the viewpoint characters 
um, in, caught up in the middle of the invasion as opposed to, you know, a, a general looking down from above, uh, the population's fleeing, the use of realistic locations and, and in, in great detail, you could plot it on a map. So Wells really borrowed all that um, and, and there was an audience who are used to that kind of fiction, but it's just that he, he brought in the Martians to, to, to go for it. But it seemed to me after the Martian invasion, it would be a huge shock for the British, wouldn't it? The British government, because our great weapons, the Navy, were virtually useless. You've got that great episode of the Thunderchild, which takes on the Martians at sea, but, but really the Navy was almost useless against the land-based Martians. And uh, so surely there would be a rebalancing. I figured we'd come to a truce with Germany. So you haven't got to have a naval arms race. Instead, instead we build up uh, massive land forces, very mobile, very quick to respond. Um, and the British Army, was, they were no dummies. You know, they learned lessons from fighting in, the, in South Africa, the Boers. So they had khaki uniforms instead of bright red anymore, you know. Yeah. They knew about trench works. They learned, learned a lot in South Africa um, and so on. So they were, they, were, they were a small but effective fighting force even in, in the real world. So really, you know, it seemed to me that the, the, the British would, would do that, try and leave the continental involvement alone and just build up land forces in anticipation of, the, of the, an, another invasion. Politically, you'd have to do that, I think. But that changes history. We, we withdraw from an engagement in the First World War. The, Ameri- the Germans have still got the, 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 the ambition. From the point of view of Berlin or New York, you know, the Martian invasion of London must have seemed... It's a huge shock and a great story, but it's, it's small and far away. It's over quickly. You know, very quickly the world would recover, wouldn't it? And the, mm. and, the, and the usual business of the world would go on. The Germans would still have their plan, the, the Schlieffen plan, to knock out Russia and knock out France and, t- and take Europe, basically. And they still would have executed it without Britain being involved. So you have a different world, First World War unfolding. Uh, so the, the, the British out of it, but fearfully waiting, and then the Martians land again. Yeah. So it was great fun to delve into all that. With a book like that, it's easy to get lost in the research. You can imagine all the histories of the First World War. It was great to, to read up. And uh, all the fantastic weapons they planned, the gigantic tanks and things. Yeah, the, brilliant. The, 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 the super guns. Well, Wells himself um, did have a, a real feel for the potential future of warfare. He, he understood the importance of aerial warfare, he understood the importance of tanks, yeah. of mechanised warfare, and he also actually envisaged quite clearly nuclear warfare, which yes. is a kind of scary thought. Yeah. Um, one of the, the uh, phrases that struck me in the book was um, cosmology and intelligence and Darwin's chill logic. Yes. This was what drives the Martians and makes it all inevitable. And there is a, a remarkable connection um, between Stephen here and he, Stephen knew Clark, Clark knew Wells and knew Stapledon, yeah. all of Stapledon, the great British SF writer of the 1930s. And Wells was taught by taught biology by Huxley, who was taught by Darwin, Darwin himself, himself yeah, yes. Yeah. So British science fiction ex- has existed in this Darwinian perspective for a very long time, almost from the beginning, really. Yeah. Um, one of the things that strikes one in uh, 
looking at the film versions of The War of the Worlds, both George Powell's version from 1953 and um, Steven Spielberg's one from the... Is it the... 2005? Uh, yeah. yeah. Is that there isn't... That doesn't really come into it. In, in George Powell's version, there's quite a strong element of religiosity. Yeah. And religion certainly gets a much better crack of the whip, if you like, in, in George Powell's War of the Worlds and in Wells's. And in Steven Spielberg's, I think there is kind of, there is rather more confidence in the stability of the state. Yeah. I think the state takes the place of a religion in, in Spielberg's vision than, than compared to Powell's. Mm. One of the defining images in, in Spielberg's at the end is the, um, the soldier in Boston and the statue of a, a soldier. And that's obviously a glance that's held for a moment that, you know, this yeah. continuity and stability of the state, the state somehow rides it out. Yeah. yeah. Um, but on rereading The War of Worlds, we do see the narrator actually being a much more religious person than, than Wells himself was in yeah. a conventional sense. Could you talk a little about this aspect of the narrator? Because it's very easy. I certainly did, and for many years I thought that the narrator of the War of the Worlds was just like a floating pair of eyes. He's simply there as a camera to observe the exciting stuff that goes on. Yeah. But what I think you've brought out, and other scholars too have brought out, is that the, the narrator of the War of the Worlds is quite a complex character. Well, I think he is, yeah, yeah. And I think he, uh, one of the great pleasures of working on a book like this is just researching it and re researching all the themes and the, and, the, and, the, and, and, and the context of it, but also how Wells actually wrote the book. And he worked very hard on the character of the, of the narrator. And you can tell from surviving drafts, the, it, it was, the book was serialised in 1897 in the papers uh, and then a novel version in 1898. But the 97 version is, is quite different from the novel version in many ways. Wells revised, that was being published as, the series was being published as Wells was writing his chapters almost, and then revised it heavily to get to the final novel version. And the character of the narrator changes quite a lot. He's, he's, he, in the earlier versions, he's still the, the observer, still running around the battlefields, but he's much more purposeful. His, his wife gets killed by the Martians and then he, ch he chases after them with revenge and rage in his heart and he finds a resistance fighter, kind of a warlord, who's uh, much... He, he's got the art artilleryman's, artilleryman's theories, but he's much more effectual. You know, he's, he's, he's rationing food and medicines and he's organising ex explosive dumps and things. And the narrator becomes a kind of suicide bomber equipped by this guy and he goes to London to blow up one of the Martians, you know, take one with you. Really literally is a suicide bomber with a with a vest hiding his weaponry. Um, however, in the final novel version, it's quite different. He, the, the narrator, he, he, he's, he's drawn to try and find his wife, but he's confused. Um, uh, he, he's always drawn after the Martians, so consciously he's going to find his wife and save her. But what he actually does is he's drawn to the Martians, drawn by the horror. He can't help but follow them. He's fascinated, he's traumatised, he's burned. Um, he's half drowned in the Thames at, uh, at uh, Weybridge yeah. um, and, uh, and so on and, and it, it seems to me what, what Wells was trying to do was draw something like shell shock as we call it now or PTSD you know he's, he's, he's battered by these 
these, these events right from the beginning of the book. Even from the beginning, he has to flee from the heat ray in the first few pages. So he's traumatized, he's confused. Towards the end, he has a fugue, he says, where he just has a blank for three or four days and has to be saved by strangers. So I think what Wells was doing, though, was trying to magnify the existential horror of the Martians by deepening the human response. You know, there's no constructive response. You know, you can't take it to them, even the way that Tom Cruise did it, I think, in the, in the movie. You, you're just devastated, you're shattered. So the state liquefies and the person liquefies as well. But yeah, but I think one way in which he shows that is the, the, the narrator is supposed to be a, a, a journalist, philosopher type like Wells, so post-religious, secular. Um, however, in his darkest times, he, he uses religious language. You recall he kills the cur- curate. They're trapped in this house but where the Martian cylinder falls on top of them, basically, and they're trapped for days. The curate keeps making noises and goes crazy, so the narrator kills him much deeper uh, sin to commit, to use that language, than killing a Martian, you would think. But he does it. And he has to confront this. And he has this passage where he describes, in the dead of night, he makes peace with his maker. And and I think what he's doing is he's grown up in a religious tradition. He's reaching back to his childhood religious tradition, um, which neither he nor Wells would have preached at the beginning of the... That's the wrong word. Would have espoused (laughs) at the beginning of the book. But he reaches for it as a way to try and draw his personality back together again. I think this is one of the really great aspects of the book, where Wells, he's only 30 or so. Um, he, it's only his third novel. He's writing a, a form of fiction of, for which there's barely any precedent. And yet, he finds his way to these really deep, dramatic techniques, uh, loading all this meaning into a character who, as you say, is, is virtually invisible to the reader in a sense you know you're looking through his eyes at the action but in fact his reaction is 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 deepening your perception of what's going on yes i i quite agree and i think that your own central viewpoint character and the subsidiary characters um do do that too and I was struck on rereading The War of the Worlds after reading The Massacre of Mankind. First of all, that the phrase The Massacre of Mankind was, is actually in it the book. Is. And that, um, that Wells, too, used the technique of having a central viewpoint character but not hesitating to draw on other people's accounts, other viewpoint yeah. characters, as necessity demanded. And I, in The Massacre of Mankind some of these other viewpoint characters get a, get a, a name for a start yeah, <laughs> and, yes. uh, which, which Wells' narrator doesn't give them and they also get stories of their own one of the, besides the um, military history aspect of Wells' what Wells drew on it's quite striking that the vision of Mars which dominated science fiction for so long um, right up until the 1950s, actually, when Robert Heinlein was cheerfully writing stories about Martians and canals and all of that, and um, which only faded when the first Mariner probes arrived at, at Mars. Yeah. It, that, this was only only a few years old. Percival Lowell's book had come out in 1895, yeah. and the War of the and not 1985. <laughs> 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 um, was that a piece of alternate history, or was it just a misprint? In the epigraph of the book, yeah. it's dated at, as um, 
1985. Oh, is it? Yes. Oh, that's a misprint. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were being Mister, really Mister, clever Mister, yeah. there. Um, no, no, no. Um, <laughs> the <Good> grief. <laughs> <laughs> well spotted. <laughs> I thought, ah, oh, they've got longevity from the Martians as well. Yeah. Um, the Yes, so Wells must have been very alert to new speculative scientific possibilities. Yeah. Um, and pounced them like us science fiction writers tend to do. Yeah. You, you find something like something that looks exciting and you immediately start thinking, what can go horribly wrong with it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's, he, oh, oh, certainly. Well, he was, he was making as, as much money out of his scientific journalism for the, for the popular papers at the time as he was from his fiction in the early days. Um, and uh, when it comes to Mars, really, the Lowell stuff was sensational at the time because there had always been... Uh, it seems to me that, that, that after the Reformation, at least, there, there was basically an assumption that life must be everywhere. If there's intelligent life on, on Earth, why should we be exceptional? It must be everywhere, which isn't a bad place to start, really. You know, mm. it, it's, it's, uh, to assume that it were unique is a, a stranger assumption to make in a way in the absence of any evidence um, so there must be creatures on Mars but really w uh, Lowell's was the first real really scientific or at least quasi-scientific model of how they could be I mean he, he was claiming to see canals um, through his telescope and so pre-photography you know no one could really disprove that um, but it seems to have been wishful thinking or maybe retinal defects or something but he thought he saw a network of canals up there, which fitted what we seem to know about Mars, small and cold, but Earth-like nevertheless, like a mountaintop or a high desert on the Earth. And people, as you say, even before Mariner in the 60s, people thought they saw waves of vegetation coming and going with the seasons. So, you know, there was maybe it's like the tundra on the Earth, not lush and rich, but still life coming and going with the seasons. Um, so, but all that was new in 1897, and so Wells leapt on all that stuff and spun out this story of the. Uh, well, it's, well, he, he nicked it from Lowell in a way, you know. Yeah. The Martians must have organised to combat the, the the collapse of the climate, um, um, and that's what we see: world-spanning civilization on Mars. It's a fantastic vision, and the, the, the you, you'll recall in the in, in, in the, the first chapter of Wells, he he quotes a Nature article which reports on strange lights on Mars, on the surface of Mars, which turned out to be the cannon firing to launch the projectiles. Well, that, that is a genuine article in Nature, you know, somebody really? actually thought they saw this yeah. stuff. And I think there's some speculation in there that maybe it's the sign of intelligence doing something or other. So, yeah, he, 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 it's very specific. He, he picks out names of astronomers and real events, or at least it real in the sense of being reported in the science papers, and spins the story from there. Um, well, I, I have to admit I'm gobsmacked by that because I, I never knew that these were the, the, the flashes of light on Mars had actually had, happened. Had been, well, they, 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 they were, it was believed to have been observed, yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm. That kind of leads on to what I, the final thing I'd like you to talk about before we open it up to the questions, which I'm sure there'll be many. Um, and that is that one of the, the striking features of Wells's book and of yours, which you know follows on from Wells's assumptions and takes them as far as we as we can, I think, um, is that 
it's no shock. There's no metaphysical shock to people when they discover that there are Martians. Mm -hmm. The mere existence of intelligent life is the um, is is not an elsewhere is not in itself startling. And I think you're right. It it does go back to this idea, which strangely enough, and contrary to what a, I think a lot of people tend to assume, the idea of intelligent life elsewhere was once almost part of Orthodox Christianity. Yes. And uh, there were lots of ministers in Scotland even who wrote speculative works about how many inhabitants there were on every moon of Saturn and Jupiter and living in the sun and the moon and so on, and was based on a, what seemed a very logical theological principle, which was that God does nothing in vain. Yeah. So surely there must be, all these worlds must be inhabited. And straight in our time, what, it, what, it, what would be the utter shock of, an, an, of an, any encounter with aliens was that they're there at all. It yeah. would be fundamentally quite disturbing. And in yes. It's only the, the, the fact that it's an invasion, a physical impact, literally, yeah. on Earth, that, that shakes people up. But the mere existence of aliens doesn't. Now, you've done a lot of writing, a lot of thinking about the implications of all the possibilities, whether there's life everywhere, whether it's very rare, or whether it's non-existent all of which are deeply puzzling and perplexing in their yeah. consequences, what often referred to as the Fermi paradox from the physicist Enrico Fermi, who said the question about aliens is, where are they? Yeah. Why aren't they here? If there are many aliens, then there must be... We, we'd know about it, but we don't. Yeah. Um, how does, how does Wells's world, Wells's imagined world, fit into the world we, we know of? the apparently empty universe? Well, I, I think, as you say, you know, Wells was living at a time when it was believed that the universe was going to be f fecund, uh, sci scientifically as well as religiously. Yeah. I mean. yeah what's the p why did would God make all these worlds if they're just empty? What's the point? Um, uh, and we've, we've had to be educated out of that. You mentioned the Mariner probes to Mars. Yeah. The first in s 1964, it was just a flyby, but they, they aimed those probes over where they thought canals would be. They no longer thought they were artificial, but they were big features, you know, so these Lowellian maps. And some, a, a space probe was sent to a Lowellian Mars, mm -hmm. basically, and they found craters. It was much more like the moon than like the Earth. And we've had to... I, I've met some of the SETI pioneers, like Frank, Frank Drake, the guy who did the first radio astronomy experiment. And although I don't think they'd admit it now, they, I think they really believed that they would find signals almost immediately, you know, maybe not the first day, but the first few years, the first 10 years, they'd find something. And, but they didn't, and then you have to expand the search. We've had to absorb the idea that we're alone. So I think that is a big disjunct from the Wellsian point of view. I think the, big sto the biggest story in the, in the end about the War of the Worlds is that, um, that we, we, we need to think about getting our act together on the Earth because we have to live with others in the cosmos. So as, as the, the sun cooled, as in this cosmology, we're all going to be moving in towards the sun, the, the Martians, um, us maybe fighting over Venus, maybe further out Jupiter, the other planets. You know, everyone's going to be coming in, much older worlds out there according to that cosmology. So, so Wells was thinking of a, a cosmological framework in which we'd have to work with others to survive in the future. But that's quite different now. Now it's, it, you know, it does look empty if there's anybody there. It's far away or they're very strange or something. Uh, that we don't understand yet. 
Um, but what I think does survive, though, is the notion of the alien. If you did meet the alien, how would you deal with it? And, I've, I, and, and I'm, in, I'm in SETI study groups. I'm on the committee, right, which reports to the academic structures around SETI and advises them on cultural aspects of contact or detection. If we did detect a signal, what would the cultural implications be? And they've always had at least one science fiction writer on there. Mm-hmm. It used to be David Brin who resigned in a huff. Yeah. You know. um, and, and you can, it's just great. You can imagine, you know. And, and uh, I did not have a telephone by my bed connected to Donald Trump. You know. <laughs> but, you know, who would they turn to? If, 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 but, but from my point of view, it's a great playful exercise. People are thinking constructively about what, particularly a signal, what would you actually do and how would you actually respond? And there is something about first contact. What is the best way to handle a first contact? Which would probably be... You know, it's awe-inspiring in the in in in, in uh, the, the War of the Worlds, but at least they're embodied creatures inside machines. That it's like categories you can understand. In some ways, UFO visitations, as they're reported, are more like what it might actually be, something beyond your comprehension. You know, something so strange it doesn't fit into any category of the world, and yet you've got to deal with it. And it seems to me that the consensus about first contact is. The only all you can do is behave well in terms of your own culture, be welcoming. And a classic example, actually, is Star Trek First Contact. You know the movie where uh, Zephram Cochran builds his starship and the Vulcans land. That's the signal that we're ready for contact. And there's a great moment where the Vulcan comes down and the Vulcan does the, the, the Spock thing. Is that right? Mm. And then but Zephram goes like this to shake his hand. And there's a kind of comedy moment when they kind of, you know, <laughs> and they shake hands in the end. Nobody takes offence, you see, because they're both doing what's right within their culture. And with a bit of sympathy, you can do that. So what do Wellsers, humans, do uh, when the Martians first land? They try and help them. You know, they go up with peace flags and there's a minister there with a Bible for them. Um, but they try and help them out of the cylinders. It's their idea. They think that they're going to be smashed up in there. We'll, we'll get the lid off. And, we'll, and the impulse is to help and welcome. Uh, which is w- so that I think is a connect between worlds of time and now. Your first impulse is to be generous and welcoming, because you might, if, if they turn out to be malevolent, well, you're stuffed anyway. But you could turn a benevolent contact into a malevolent one by being hostile. So I think there are some, you know, there are philosophical threads that you know still apply today. That's really interesting. I think a good point to. <coughs> return to the wider human cooperation by (laughs) bringing up the lights and opening it to the audience and if people will remember to use the microphone which will be handed around to ask their questions Hi there in the book you've created a world which is writing style, characters, politics history, a straightforward continuation of the original War of the Worlds how frustrating did you find it in terms of the laws of physics having to follow the same rules? Because obviously, the, the world, the war of the, the physics was in late nineteenth century. Yeah. All the assumptions. How how tempting was it to update that to what we now know? Oh, uh, uh, not tempting at all, actually. In the time ships, my sequel to the time machine, I did some of that. You know, Welder's character he doesn't go much into the implications of time travel, uh, changing the past. You know. So in that book, I had a lot of fun where, um, uh, it, 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 with a different future, you know, the, the, the time traveller comes back with this vision of the Morlock and the Eloy. It's very visit to the past again, 
changes everything from that point. We don't go down that route. It's an awful warning, like 1984. Yeah. It's an awful warning of a future. We don't go down that route. So a different kind of Morlocks turn up. Um, so that wasn't. Wells could have done that, I believe. You know, in early drafts of the Time Machine, he he does have past changing events. Um, so 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 in that book, I, I I went beyond Wells in that sense. But no, in this one, it was actually great fun. You know, to to research the physics again of of as assumed at the time of the formation of the planets and uh, the how the sun was going to burn out soon, very soon actually, within a few million years it was thought, uh, and the the fact that the, 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 the it was thought that the planets were thrown off in successive bursts from the sun so that, and then drifted out, so the further out the planet was, the older it was. Neptune was going to be billions and billions of years old. Jupiter seemed to be the key, the biggest planet, and very old, even compared to the Martians. But, you know, the Martians are more advanced than we've got, and so on. The Venetians, a primitive world. I just loved all that, you know. So, so it was... It was uh, and no, it wasn't frustrating at all. It was like a... Uh, it, it was a... I think it was necessary to do that, to delve into that, in order to make Wilder's story work at all. Um, but I, I, I just loved it. Fascinating. Are the lady here. I, I hope you don't mind, but I'd like to ask you about the uh, series The Long the Long Mars and The Long Earth and uh, that you did with Terry Pratchett because I okay. enjoyed them enormously. Thank you. I, I just, uh, it's such an interesting idea and I just wondered if you could tell me what each of you contributed to the making of the series. Well, the, 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 uh, the Long Earth series... It, uh, Terry Pratchett had ambitions to be a science fiction writer in the beginning, and his first couple of novels were science fiction. And he had this idea, which he, he, he never really developed, about parallel worlds, which you're going to step into with a simple gadget, very human scale, um, but, but, but they're like our world, but empty of humans. So it's full of mammoths and things, but no humans. You, you, and you step again and again into this chain of worlds, which gets successively stranger. And, but Terry got stuck with that. You know, he did a couple of stories which were like Wild West stories. It's a frontier. But he didn't have a kind of visual imagination in that way. Um, uh, and he didn't have a kind of orderly imagination in which you'd construct a map of this big cos- wider cosmos. So what I construct, c- contributed to that particularly was a map of the wider cosmos. I turned up with a big spreadsheet and, you know, uh, in which we p- were able to work out the story so the characters were Terry is Joshua, this this kind of driven, um, loner kind of individual. Uh, that was Terry's invention very much. Um, but the landscapes were all mine into which Joshua ventured. So it was it was a, it was great a great fun to to work on that great back and forth. I think in some ways it relates back to Wells um, because he some of his more abstract stories were like were like this. Uh, like, like Terry's simple vision you just step and you're in another world there's no mechanisms to speak of there's no science in a way it's just there and yet it feels like science so worlds are stories like the door in the wall oh where, yes yeah, yeah. where, yeah. where, you, where, you, where you hold in a fence as I recall it's a kind of Thomas Mendike Garden thing where and then the guy loses it he can't get back or the story called the, the remarkable case of Davidson's eyes if I remember where a guy starts seeing stuff from around the other side of the world um, uh, and and, you, and you, you verify it that this, the ship that he sees on some South Sea island was actually there at the time, you know. So they, so they, so they, uh, it feels scientific, and and Wells goes on about hand waving about extra dimensions and so forth. Um, but uh, I think that I think the level of 
science, science fictional thinking in The Long Earth is actually quite like those, those stories of Wells. A simple, a, a simple flip that you can then justify with some, some science, yeah. And Jeff now. Hi. Uh, you, mentioned, you used the phrase earlier, you were saying like, the, the Martians have to come back to Earth. Yeah. Um, but at the time of, sort of Wells, there's lots of kind of unofficial sequels to War Wells. I'm sure you probably came across a bunch of them when you were doing your research. And there's one with, I think it's by a guy called Service, where they do the opposite and they all go to Mars. Yeah. Were you ever tempted to kind of go a different way with it and explore the Martian planet or anything like that? Or was it always, it's always going to be on Earth, they're always going to come back to Earth? Or did you ever have any inkling to do something different? Yeah. Oh, good. Good question. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you referred to the, the very first sequel to the War of the Worlds. It was a. It was a. The, as it was being serialised in Britain, the War of the Worlds was serialised in knockoff copies in America, where they changed London to Boston and so on. You know, without any payment to Wells. Um, uh, but the, the Americans weren't happy with the story, though. They thought the Americans, the British, were a bit weedy. The Americans would biff the Martians. So yeah, it's Edison's Conquest of Mars was this sequel that was serialised, following straight on from the, the serialisation of Worlds the original, in which Edison, who was seen at the time as a kind of, I think he's like Tony Stark in the Iron Man movies, an industrialist with sort of superpowers and s- massive wealth, he, he assembles a fleet. And the Americans lead us to Mars, and they, they I think they cause a, a catastrophe in the end by blocking off the canal junctions or something. And so, you know, they, they, they kind of miss the point of the Darwinian mm. stuff and so forth. Um, but no, I thought about that. You know, I, I, th- I think the way to approach a sequel like that is to um, put, put a, not research the original too much, just base it on my memories, have a kind of brain dumped the possibilities that could emerge in a sequel. And then go back to the original and see how the what hooks in, you know. I, I thought in the end that what I was aiming for was the world's cosmic context. In the end, we've got to have to live with the Martians, no matter what happens. It's either wh- whether we go there, whether they come here again. Um, that is the the, the bigger story. Um, and I thought I could do that while tying the the sequel quite closely into Wells's original, because you know the settings and the the, the hints he gives of the Martians on the Earth and, and how human society would have developed immediately afterwards uh, uh, is really very interesting, and I really wanted to go into that. Adam Roberts, who's going to appear here, isn't yes, he? Yes, he, he did a great introduction to uh, w- one of the recent editions of The War of the Worlds in which he goes through all the hints the narrator gives of the future beyond the war. Mm. All little, little hints in the, in, in the text... Uh, I think in the first paragraph he says something like, it's difficult to remember how in those days we didn't look at the night sky with fear. Things like that. And he draws out a, a kind of hint, hint by hint, a picture of this fearful, more warlike society. He says there's fewer newspapers, for instance. Why? Presumably because you know, the news is more con- tightly controlled than it was before the war. So, and so I, I thought that was really interesting. Wells himself had an implicit vision of England, Britain, after the war. Um, so, so digging into that and extrapolating from that was was, was very interesting. So, I th- I, yeah, I, I I I did think of, of of taking it much further, but I thought you know there's enough there to get the main themes um, um, out there. It's really noisy, isn't it? It's yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> I'll, I'll speak up. <laughs> um, just again, if I could, to just take you back a little bit over over the other part of your career or other parts of your career, and Ken mentioned how prolific you are, and it's just struck me with, with many of your books that the vast scale 
of the ideas and the you know this, this this canvas that you know you draw on it, and it you know following a DNA line you know over millions of years or a family over thousands of years. How do you even start? You know, I, I, I'm sort of terrified thinking about how you would keep hold of these threads of ideas, you know, and contain them. Do you start with, you know, with, with, with a whole plan, or do you immerse yourself in an idea and just write for weeks on end and think, you know, I'll get there in the end? Or, uh, it's just, it, it's astonishing. Oh, thank you for saying that. No, no, uh, no I, I, I tend to plan everything. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's like what they say about the military, you know, oh, no plan lasts long in contact with the enemy. Yeah. But at least start that way. I've got a vision of some kind of, of how the, the thing is going to go. So, yeah, I'll, I'll usually have something, some, some vision of, of this great spread of space and time. Um, but you've got to look for a story to tell. Um, so, uh, for instance, I did a book called Exultant, which was referring back to my earlier work. My, my first few novels were setting what I call the Zeely universe. The Zeely, this universe, galaxy-dominating species. And it's a war in heaven. We're all scrabbling around at the level below. But at some point, the, un- the humans take on the Zeely in a million-year war. I said in a paragraph in 1987, you know, later in 1997, I thought, well, how do you, would you actually wage a war like that? You know, how, what, what kind of human society could wage a war on a timescale of tens of thousands or a million years um, but, but to tell a story like that uh, you, you, you have to look for um, a human story and, 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 I, uh, and I think I have had an instinct as Wells does go for, a, go for a, somebody who's suffering in there, somebody who's got a problem with it so in, in, in that book Exultant, it's at the pivot of the war the humans have crashed their way across the galaxy they're facing the Zeely in the centre of the galaxy it's, it's huge, just just that alone is a gigantic um, landscape to, on which to wage a war. But you have this one guy in there who gets displaced. One problem with fighting a relativistic, a, a, an interstellar um, battle is that it's so large that you'd have time slips going on the whole time. You know, you'd have a ship arriving back from a battle that hasn't been fought. It would happen all the time. So I figured, I figured that you would, you, you, would, you would systematize that, you know, you'd try and get hints about the future and avoid that battle. But the other side would do the same. You'd end up with a kind of trench warfare as each side tried to maximize, or tried not to lose at least. Yeah. So who's it hurting is a guy whose future self comes back from this, from this having lost a battle. He's a loser, you know. So this, and you've lost your whole future. You're confronting your own more experienced, elder, more senior, promoted self. So this displaced character is caught in the middle of all this. He has to go back to the Earth to figure out where we go next and, and how we can actually break through this logjam of the war. But I think that's the, that's, the, that's the key. Find a character or a set of characters who have got a human story that somehow expands to, to, uh, uh, to encompass the bigger story. And I think I learned that you know, from, from, from studying many classic works. One in particular will be Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke, in which... The aliens come down and they uplift us, basically. They help, they nursemaid us, they midwife us to the next stage of human evolution. We become these super beings. Uh, So it's a great cosmic story, but who's it hurting? It's the mother and the father who lose their kids. You know, it's it's, it's little Johnny and little, little Jean running around, but they show strange signs of powers and they gradually become more and more strange. Then they come back for a while, they're your kids again, but you lose them in the end. There's a human substrate to the story in which you know it's like every parent losing their kid as they grow grow up but but there you are you've got this fantastic 
Stapledonian vision of, of the uplift of mankind, but the story is told through somebody who's, who, who, who doesn't like it, you know, it's a mother losing a child. But, so that, that's the trick, I think. You plan it all out and then see it through a character who's at the cusp and is being dis destroyed by it, really. We have time for just one last question, and then we, we, have, to, we have to close, have to leave. So if you don't mind making it quick. Yeah. You've written sequels to two H.G. Wells novels. Will you ever do a third? Well, I'm, you know, well, why not? I think an obvious one for me to do would be The First Men in the Moon. You know, what happened next? Because <laughs> it's another book that ends on a huge cliffhanger, really. Do you recall that uh, Cavour gets trapped in the moon, he sends radio signals to the Earth, and, and, and he unwisely boasts about our war-making capabilities. And the Lunar Society is more advanced than us, have seen firsthand, you know, Bedford, the other character, bludgeoning his way around the moon. And so Cavour realises he's given away this dreadful truth, you know, he should have tried to present a positive aspect of humanity. Uh, I think Wells do on Swift a great deal. And, and do you recall the episode with the smart horses in which it, Gulliver brags about the kings and queens and the politics and so forth of the empire building of his time? And, but it looks awful to the smart horses. In the same way, uh, our nations and our warlike manners See, seem, would seem awful to the and in fact a menace to the to the society on the moon so surely the there's a war brewing there between the the, the lunar society and the human society whether they come to us or we go to them or whatever however it happens that's, that's that that seems a, another open question to, to follow up and, and and the deeper themes and there's always deeper themes in wells what he was really getting at there what he was inspired by was the mechanization uh, uh, and specialization that he saw even in his own time you know people driven off away from craft work towards assembly line work even in Wells' own time even in the 1901 or so how far would that go how how diminished would humans be to be made into auto automata in effect on on, on you know and, and he, so we saw the uh, the selenites as a, an extension of that i think so once again, suppose you brought, suppose some industrialists brought a bunch of satellites down to the earth and set up a, a car factory. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about Uber, you know. Yeah. It's, so it's not automation, it's specialisation and, and, and so on. So, uh, so I think that would be an obvious one to do. But maybe, I think I should give it a few years to, to mulch down. Mulch, and, yes. yeah. <laughs> the, ne the next men on the moon, perhaps. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, whatever may be the fate of that sequel, it was said of, by Arthur C. Clarke, no less, of the time ships. Stephen's sequel to The Time Machine that it was better than the original yes. <laughs> and uh, Stephen is too modest to agree with that but I will say wholeheartedly that The Massacre of Mankind is better than The War <laughs> of the Worlds <laughs> and that copies will be, you know, you can get your copy signed at the signing tent just uh, 50 metres from that door um, the, 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 the tent will just Stephen and I will just go there and but before we go, I'd like you all to thank Stephen Baxter for this fine talk. Thank you. And thank you, Ken, as well. Thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. 
Just search for EdBookFest. The next book festival is on from the 11th to the 27th of August 2018.